kid. Jerry, are you ready? Ready. Let's play ball. So in 2018, you won the Tony Gwynn Award, a Lifetime Achievement Award Baseball America gives annually for contributing to the game. What do you believe are some of the qualities that have enabled you to have a 50-plus year career in baseball? Longevity. <laughs> the number one is being 77 years old. I think they, they ran out of younger guys and they got down to me. I'm obviously pleased to receive an award like that, but somewhat embarrassed. It's, it's quite an award because when J.J. Cooper from Baseball America called me, he said it was unanimous. We, you were the only guy we even talked about. I said, okay. I said, ooh, it's unbelievable to get an award that's uh, that honors Tony Gwynn. I said, who's gotten this award? It's, it's a new award, relatively, because he passed a short time ago. And he said, well, first recipient was Cal Ripken. I said, you got to be kidding me. I'm getting an award named after Tony Gwynn that the first recipient was Cal Ripken. I said, seems like somewhat of a drop off here. He says, and, and then Tom Kochman, who was a premium scout for the Angels for a long time works for the Red Sox now and, and uh, rookie league coach and uh, tremendous guy and very humbling. So while baseball has certainly changed and been through a lot of technological changes in the last decade or so, what are some of the core lessons that have never changed and many don't speak about since you first started playing baseball? The core is, is you better be able to use your eyes and better be able to react to the game pitch by pitch and not have to rely on looking at your clipboard for the data to access, to make decisions. The game happens very fast in the dugout. And obviously, you need to do your homework and be prepared before the game. But there's a lot of things that happen during the game that will affect your decision making. Good instincts and gut feel and good observational uh, skills uh, are still going to be the thing that, that rules the day. So you have successfully coached baseball in high school, junior college, summer college leagues, NCAA Division One, the minor leagues, the major leagues, and international competitions such as the Olympics and the World Baseball Classic. If you could go back and tell a high school athlete something today, what would you tell them to help them on their journey? Maintain your passion for the game. That's number one. Number two, accept responsibility for your actions. Player development is just that. It's the player developing himself. Now, certainly, Coaches are going to be resources, but ultimately the best lessons are self-taught. And so you have to accept responsibility for your development and it's a game. It must be fun. There's going to be highs and lows. There's a lot of speed bumps out there, but embrace all parts of the game and everything's important. So having written numerous books and videos on catching, what is it that you wish pitchers knew more about that catchers do? I think that the awareness, uh, I think that pitchers are really have had an accelerated learning curve with today's game as far as the impact of catching on their performance on a given day. And I think that there is an, and really has been an appreciation for that pitcher-catcher relationship, not only from the catchers with a servant mentality, but the, I think the pitchers truly do understand what the catchers do for them. And even more so now with the data that we have relative to receiving and framing and things like that and how it enhances the pitcher's performance. So I love watching the movie Heading Home, The Tale of Team Israel and seeing you in the movie. It was a great story, but what are some of the 
tales you wish that they should put in there, but they didn't. I think one of the things <laughs> that it, 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 it was all fun and games, but the process of leading up to it was pretty arduous. Getting a, the best players first, identifying the best players and then convincing them to play was not an easy task. We thought that after the qualifier that we'd have access to a lot of 40 man guys and they'd want to play, but it didn't turn out that way. Organizations were reticent to, to send players, number one, because it was right during spring training. We were going numerous time zones away to Korea and possibly Japan. And so the, the, and the talent pool is not that deep. I'll tell you one really quick story. I had a young guy who worked for Houston, Alex Jacobs, who was a pro scout, really sharp guy and really devoted to our cause. And he helped me identify players, find players and so on and so forth. And we were really scuffling for a shortstop. Now we would have played Ty Kelly at short. We would have been okay, but we really didn't have a true shortstop. And so he calls me one day and, and I was, I think I was during the summer, I was in the Cape and he says, Hey, do you know Scotty Burcham? And I said, nah, I don't think so. He says, he's in your organization. He plays it. He plays it to Asheville. And he says, do you know if he's Jewish? I said, no, I don't, I don't know. He says, look at what Alex had been doing. We were, we had hit a roadblock and he had was going through every minor league roster and any non descript type uh, name, for instance, if he knew if they were definitely Jewish, but he didn't know if they were not Jewish because a lot of times it might be a Jewish mother and, and a, and a, and a Gentile father whatever. And so the name doesn't always tell you whether they're Jewish or not. And so what he did, he went, he says, look at, he says, I went on Scotty Bertram's mother. I found Scotty Bertram's mother Facebook page and she's definitely Jewish. And so I, I said, I'll call. <laughs> so I called our manager again and Joe Mickle looked there. I said, Joe, I said, this is going to be the most different request that you've ever had. I said, would you ask Scotty Bertram if he's Jewish or not? And they were in the locker room just after BP before a game. And, hey, Bertram, come over here. This Jerry Weinstein's on the phone. He says, are you Jewish? He says, yeah, my mom is. And that's how we got our shortstop, who was an integral performer on our team. He was a low-A player, but he played like a big leader on the team and was embraced by all the big league players on that team. So he was a key element. And that's how hard it was to really find the right guys that were Jewish to play on that team because it, it was difficult. The other one was Jason Marquis. I must have called him 30 times and he never returned a call. And then finally I, I looked and he had, there was an alumni team in uh, the National Baseball Conference that was playing in Wichita. And, and Marquis was playing and I read where he had played and pitched the first six innings and then it was a 15 inning game. He played the last nine innings in the outfield night. Finally, said, hey, I'll try him one more time. And I called him. This was right before the uh, qualifier, maybe less than a month before the qualifier. And he was in Florida at uh, Disney World with his family. And I said, hey, would, I, know, I know you like to play with your places. And I said, look, you live in Staten Island. The qualifier's in Brooklyn. You can live at home. You can commute, whatever you want to do. We just need to have you pitch twice. It's like a 55-pitch count deal and you're pretty much ready right now. I say, yeah, I'm ready to go. I said, definitely be ready by then. Okay, I'll do it. But I'm not playing. I'm just playing in the qualifier. And so Marquis comes on and, and when he, 
He says, the only thing is, he says, I want to be in a hitting group and I want to take ground balls at short every day. I say, hey, whatever you need, big guy, just be ready to pitch twice. He says, no problem. And Marquis is the kind of guy that when he commits to something, he's not on the periphery. He's all in. He was great to the young guys. He was all in in terms of being a team guy and, and a winner. And he obviously pitched extremely well. And, and uh, we qualified. And then after the qualifier, I said, well, you know, I'm reticent to ask you this. He says, I know what you're going to ask me. He says, yeah, I want to go to the I want to go to the WBC and wherever it is, I'll be there. And so we had him for the uh, the first round in Seoul, Korea. And then we had him in Tokyo and he was great. And he was great with the guys. And just a first class individual and a real professional. So that's, those are my two WBC stories. How did you get a bunch of guys who may have not been on the same team before to play such great team baseball? In 2012, I was supposed to coach the team. And uh, I, I got a big league job with the Rockies and was unavailable to do it. And so Brad Osmus did it. And they had a really good team. They had Jock Peterson and a lot of the guys that the Nate Frymans and numerous guys that were on our team in 2016 and 17. And they had gone through the round robin undefeated. And then they had to play. As it turns out, you play the team out of the loser's bracket and, and it's a one game series and whoever wins it, whether you both have one, one loss or not. And they ended up losing to Spain. And I know Josh side for one, that was a very impactful experience on him. And it really, I hate to be dramatic, but for him, it, it, it somewhat scarred him. And like when we qualified, he says this whole WBC was the highlight of his baseball career. And he's a very accomplished guy from Vanderbilt who pitched in the big leagues. And so we had a core from that team that were with us in, in 2016-17. And well, we had this little mini camp before the qualifier in Hudson Valley, and we got together and we worked. First day we worked out. No, some guy, a lot of guys didn't know one another, but there was a core of guys that were buddies just because professional baseball is a fraternity and everybody knows everybody. So after our workout, we had a little time because I had set up a field trip. After our workout, we were going to the military academy and talked to the cadets about professional baseball, the WBC, so on and so forth. And we just sat in the dugout and I said, hey, I, I don't know most of you guys. Most of you guys don't know me and you, some of you one another, but a lot don't. And let's just say, hey, who are you? Where are you from? Tell us a little about you. And when it got to Zide, it got to be extremely emotional how much it meant to him. And that really resonated with our group. And I think that that was the foundation of that team culture that carried through <clears throat> both the uh, qualifier and the WBC. So that's how that's how it happened in such a short period of time. I think also a guy like Cody Decker, who was really a, a an, an entertainer, a good player, and also added to the team culture, being really very social, very loose. He's the guy that brought the bench to the bench and stuff like that. And there was we had a bunch of really good guys who were there for the right reason. Wasn't there weren't any individual agendas, and I mean we had Sammy Fold, who's a GM of the Phillies now, and any guy that came on board was a hundred percent there to help us win ball games. So, who are the best teammates you have coached over the years, and what is it that made them the best, the greatest teammates? 
I'm not gonna I'm not gonna single people out, but I can tell you what makes a great teammate is a guy that is has the right his priorities in order relative to team first and myself second. Going to the ballpark today to help someone get better and and sacrificing and consistent on a daily basis, whether they go four for four or zero for four, and being a team guy and really taking care of his business in terms of his preparation and effort, how they play, how hard they play. I'll name one guy, and to me, one of the best of all time is Michael Kadire, who played who played for the Twins for a long time and then with the Rockies. And he's that's the kind of guy you're looking for to create uh, team culture as a, as a team. And really unselfish, giving internal leaders, not afraid to be transparent and say something to someone that might hurt their feelings and being self-deprecating in terms of accepting responsibility for their actions. That's that's what we're looking for. So on this podcast, I like to end with more of a broader question. So my question to you is, what is your favorite baseball books? Ooh, most of the <laughs> most of the baseball books. I don't read too much fictional type stuff in terms of baseball books and the Bull Durham's and the stuff like that. And I don't even know if there's a book, Bull Durham. I know there's a movie, but I most of the stuff I read is technical. And then I'll read a lot of mindset stuff like uh, Ken Revisa's book and Harvey Dorfman and uh, different technical books. I just finished a book on by Bill Parisi on fascia and uh, the book by Tom Tango Tiger and guys like that. I'd read mostly things that relate to the new metrics in baseball and analytical type stuff, Bill James type stuff, but not so much novels per se. So where can people find more about you and your resources? Twitter. I do some on Twitter just about every day. It's capital JW, small, on, and capital, all caps, catching. And then I've got a website that I, I have a book that I've written, a catching book, and it's weinsteinbaseball.com. That's, that's about it. Jerry, thank you so much for playing ball. You bet, Sammy. Enjoyed it. Hey, it's Sammy here. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, I would like to ask for your help. Tell me what questions you would like answered. If you could also take a moment to review the show. The algorithms are taking into account how many ratings and reviews I get. The more reviews, the more people they restore the podcast with. And don't forget to play ball, kid.